Welcome to Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape Conversations on Mythology with Chris Thompson at storyarchaeology.com. In the second of these new conversations, I get to talk to statistical physicist and comparative mythologist Professor Ralph Kenner. Professor Ralph Kenner is an Irish mathematician and theoretical physicist who is head of the Statistical Physics Research Group at Coventry University. He's a specialist in critical phenomena and sociophysics. But look, I shouldn't be telling you. Ralph, tell us all about yourself. Thank you, Chris. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you. I've, I, was, I was born in Athlone, in the centre of Ireland, and uh, after a kind of a typical uh, itinerant uh, Struggled through academia. I ended up here in Coventry, Coventry University, where, as you say, I'm head of statistical physics. So that 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 career path was via Graz in Austria, and then um, Liverpool, and then I went to Dublin, and now that's where I ended up back here in Coventry. So statistical physics is my area, and I, I am very acutely aware that statistics is not exactly everybody's cup of tea. Statistical physics is, for example, water. Um, you know that water is made of H2O molecules, and uh, but the H2O molecules themselves don't flow. You have to put them all together to to get some emergent features, some collective features like uh, flowing. So what we do in statistical physics is we take we take the microscopic and we turn it into the macroscopic, and from that we get some emergent phenomena. So what you said to me was it's really the physics of large amounts of small things. Very much so. Yes, these small individual things. Are complicated things. So, for example, an atom has quantum characteristics, and uh, it itself is a whole field. But we, in our statistical physics world, we zoom out from the detail of the atoms, and we just consider some essence of them, such as whether something is there or not there. You've taken this in a unique, unique direction, though, haven't you? Yes. Well, nowadays, or less than the last twenty years, or thereabouts, sociophysics became quite a popular thing are quite an accepted thing. So people use the ideas from statistical physics to examine society, various aspects of crowds, for example, and or let's say opinion dynamics, this sort of thing. The the unique aspect that we've done, or it was unique when we started at least, and rather than looking at societies as we have them now, we look at societies as they are depicted in narratives, and especially mythological narratives or uh, medieval narratives or epic narratives, let's say. The thing for us about that is that these emergent phenomena, we can compare one text to another text in that way. So we can compare societies to other societies. And that's our our unusual approach. That's brilliant. To, to take physics into the exploration of stories and mythology, I think is extremely exciting. It, it Back in my teaching days, I was a specialist in oral development, drama, creative writing. I was always drawn to maths and physics, but I'm very aware that I don't speak the language. I can only follow with translations, as it were. I think, I think communication through analogies is a key to teaching, actually. And perhaps you've um, not been taught in that way, but if you did, then you would find physics suddenly very accessible because it is, in the end, it's not so difficult. Now, I know we both share a very strong interest, perhaps a passion for mythology. I mean, my exploration began when I was extremely young, probably from when I was about six or so and reading the Narnia Chronicles, but I think it goes back further. So I was exposed from a very early age to Old Testament Bible stories. 
in the authorised version, I have to add. And it certainly began my love of poetry and language and was extremely helpful when I came to study Shakespeare and the metaphysical poets later. So how did your interest in mythology develop? I, I come from Athlone, as I said. I mean, now it's very, it's very cultured and there's lots of Irish music in, in Athlone. But back then, in the 70s, let's say, or 80s, there wasn't really much going on. So in school, we weren't taught about mythology either. We, we had a little touch upon it, but not really anything of significance or impact. Really, I think it came for me, well, at least in part, through music that emerged in, let's say, like the early 80s, 70s. The likes of Thin Lizzy. Roisin Dove, you'll know from Thin Lizzy. Phil Linnett, of course, everybody loves <laughs> Phil Linnett. And um, bands like the Horse, the Horse Lips. <laughs> I remember I, I, I had developed this interest and desire for uh, Irish mythology especially, but it was very complicated for me. And I tried to map out the characters too, because it gets, it gets very complex. You've got many characters interacting with each other and, You're absolutely correct. You know, I was also very much involved with music in the late 60s, early 70s, from the Yardbirds into Led Zeppelin and Fleetwood Mac. When it was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, I hasten to add. Yeah, I agree with you. The the language of the music at that time sent your head reeling into mythology. And you're also right about the problem with the stories not being accessible, particularly to school children. This is something I'm very concerned about now, trying to create versions that can be just as exciting as Marvel hero stories to the 9 to 12-year-old age group because they are good stories and so few of them are known. Yeah, I do understand. But go on, tell me a little bit more. Well, I think, yes, that's the, I think that's the thing. Music is a universal. That was, to some extent, my way in the... I mean, my interest, my primary interest was physics, so... So I didn't really have much time to explore Irish mythology to a great to the depth that you, that you would have had, let's say. But um, but I, I and, and really the opportunity came in the 1990s. There came onto the world of physics a fantastic, well, relatively new area called network science. Everything wasn't a rigid lattice anymore, but it was also more like a network, not quite random, but some sort of a like a societal network. We call it complex network. So physicists had developed network science in the early 2000s and. I remember going to conferences and so on where people who were who previously used to talk about just physics now were talking about sociophysics, applying physics to society. And uh, that's how I got the idea, well, actually, this could be a way back to Irish mythology in particular, because um, I could use this type of sociophysics approach to look at the, the societies depicted in epic narratives like Tombo Cunha. I th- I think it I think it's really exciting. I know about how flocks of birds and shoals of fish were being used uh, as examples to show this fluid dynamic flow, and that they were being used in um, how you organise an airport and so forth. But the step into taking it into the way that story and our and mythology works, and the flow and ebb of that, and how it networks, I think that's a real new step. Well, it was um, certainly an adventurous step. I remember asking my physics-y friends at the time, do you think this is a good idea? Um, but it is, it's so obvious afterwards. It's obvious now. I mean, what at- atoms are to magnets, people are to society, and what, these are what characters are to a story. This took a little while to get the bravery, let's say, to apply for a grant. I still have to maintain a strong foothold in the physics world. I was lucky enough, actually, to, to get a, a, a grant to employ a, a student, a PhD student, to work with me on the topic. And I got a very good one, Project McCarran. That's a really good way of describing it. So then, tell me more about the paper, Myths and Maths. Well, our first paper, the title of the paper was Universal Properties of Mythological Narratives. And um, 
this was actually, we submitted to a physics journal. We had to do that because um, it was, we had a bit of a battle trying to get people, to convince people from the humanities that this is a reasonable approach into their territory. So we submitted into our home turf, which was, which was physics. And actually it turns out that that first paper, which we loosely call, yeah, maths, the project is called Maths, maths and Myths or Maths Meets Myths. <laughs> okay, the first um, paper turned out to be the most downloaded paper of any in European physics journals, uh, 32,000 downloads. So it's, it, it's, it made it quite an impact. And uh, we had to slowly move our way towards humanities journals. And, and as, as the humanities people slowly came around to accepting our approach and thinking it's, it's quite legitimate. I mean, back in those, back in the early days, interdisciplinarity was a little bit frowned upon. And the idea was that physicists really do physics and uh, but we were amongst the people who tried to break down these sides. My primary target, firstly, was to look at Tom Bocuglia, because this is naturally the, the, the one of Irish mythology that we're interested in. But there's no way we could get a paper on Tom, Tom Bocuglia in a physics journal uh, just by itself. So we, 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 uh, we put it Tom Bocuglia, Beowulf and the Iliad, because even physicists know about the Iliad. <laughs> Whereas they might, I mean, internationally. They're not going to know about Tom Bocuglia, except for maybe Irish physicists. That was the way we had to navigate our way through there. But I do remember as well back then the first presentation, or one of the first I did to humanities, to a, was in St. Petersburg of all places. And I'd say that probably more than 50% of the humanities audience were receptive. One of the things we were talking about then was Beowulf, because I, as I say, we wanted to compare Tom Bocuglia to Beowulf and to the Iliad. And one of the things we did was to, this, is, this sounds weird for humanities people, but it's quite normal for physicists. We removed the character Beowulf from the story of Beowulf, but we kept everything else, the, the entire society. Now, this is quite a normal thing to do in physics. You quite happily explore alternate realities or made-up realities in order to explore our actual, actual reality. So how is Beowulf without Beowulf? And I remember uh, one, one guy actually at that conference, and he was really absolutely abhorred because he said, you cannot possibly have... Beowulf, the story about Beowulf, the character. And he's absolutely right, of course, you cannot. But the network behind Beowulf is what we were trying to uh, explore. And we did similar things to Tom Bocuglia, because they're very superhero stories. Uh, Cucullin and many other characters have supernatural powers. So we wanted to try to humanise them a little bit and see to what extent would it take to make these look a little bit more realistic. I, I get that. Now, that's absolutely fascinating the paper seems to have caused quite a stir. Well, yes, um, it, it certainly did. As I said, it was a, quite a, it's very highly downloaded. Actually, it's very popular in Belarus of all, of all places. Yeah. It did create quite a stir. There was some resistance in the early days. There, there was no resistance from the physics community at all. They completely embraced it and thought it was very uh, novel and uh, bold. And uh, some of the, the humanities people were less enamored in the beginning. But after we had a chance to explain a little bit more about the philosophy that we're coming from, then they really got it. Even that, that, that uh, chap I mentioned there, the one in uh, St. Petersburg, who was protesting when we removed Beowulf from Beowulf, we sat down afterwards at a coffee and I explained that this is, this, this is quite a normal thing to do in physics. We can introduce negative entropy, for example, into something. But uh, we can do crazy things and remove bits from reality to explore what reality would be like without it. And equally, we can remove characters to see what the network would look like without them. Now, I was just going to say, it's extremely interesting because that fits the stories. As we today like to have hero stories, you can look at the backgrounds they come from and they fit 
the societies that the, who have created them. So you could tell a lot about uh, post-war America from uh, from Superman stories, for instance. They do reflect the society of the time. So I think I understand why you have to take out the supernatural elements to ex- examine that societal network and its flow. One thing that I you, you mentioned earlier that I thought was worth commenting on was that you couldn't just create a paper with the ton or ton Cunha because people wouldn't recognise it. It was almost one of the things that brought me to Ireland was the fact that I wanted to get in touch with the stories that I couldn't understand why they weren't as famous. Beowulf is so much better known than the Irish stories. From the late 19th century, uh, they were treated very badly. They were regarded as of no literary value whatsoever by certain English experts. And the Irish stories are some of the richest and deserve to be very well known. But you're quite right. Yes, and this was a thing that we, we, we kind of had to smuggle them in a little bit. Well, they are very rich, so we didn't really have much smuggling to do. We just represented in, a, in the way that they are. And we were able to measure the complexity of the various narratives and compare them to each other. Well, in the early days, our first questions were more to do with complexity, comparative, and verisimilitude. So let's say how realistic, or what would it take to make them look realistic? So that was our first paper. And as we went along, the questions began to become a little bit more targeted towards the material that we were uh, looking at. We can always compare narratives to each other in network terms, in in the societal terms that they have. But as we went along, we slowly accrued a a gang of, um, of uh, humanities people who, who allied with us. And these people brought with them the expertise that they have in the, in the various narratives that we began to explore. Uh, one of the early ones we looked at, for example, was the was Icelandic sagas and uh, the societal structures in these. An interesting question that was in that, for example, was that uh, one of them, I think it's Laxdela saga, is believed to be written by a, a woman. There's a, a much stronger presence in network terms of women in Laxdela saga than there is in the other parts of the Icelandic sagas. It's also been suggested that the Icelandic sagas may have been influenced by women from Ireland who were taken to a new land and they brought their stories with them. But we always say that we don't really know the question that we're asking until after we have the answer in some sense. The answer being embedded in the data that we collect. In the typical physics fashion, we gather data, we look at it and we observe patterns in this data. And these patterns can inspire questions that we find are actually already asked by the humanities people, and even they have the answers. One that was very interesting for us was uh, the Oceanic poem. This became a very important one later, but at the time we were studying it, it was really just an academic curiosity for us. We looked at them and we began to explore the data. I don't know if, to what extent people are familiar with the, the story of James McPherson, the, 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 the Oceanic Poetry. Oh, yes. James McPherson, the keen collector of fragments of early Gaelic poetry, which he insisted were of very ancient origin, although his own Gaelic was said to be somewhat imperfect. But in 1761, he published Fingal, an ancient epic poem in six books translated from the Gaelic language. Now, whether or not he'd received the fragments from an Ossianic bard, as he stated, is debatable. And certainly the poetry was very much in his own style. I mean, yes, at the time, Scotland was in great need of a strong national narrative, so shortly after the Battle of Culloden. But it was written at a time when neoclassicism was a very important influence. When nothing else was valued except for 
the ancient Greek classical stories. He wanted to be thought of as the Homer of the North. It, everything had to be compared to Homer. Yes, that's exactly it. And yes, of course, everything had to be classical then. It, it wasn't welcomed in England. It was considered a fake at the time it was written immediately. I think it was Johnson who went, this is all completely made up. It was him. He, was, he, he said there's no way you could possibly have a literature of this complexity coming down orally in somewhere as a... Uh, Primitive, let's say, uh, Scotland, as he perceived it. I believe in the last few years, people are looking at it again. It still has far more connection with the Irish stories, but it's so separated. If there was any original uh, antique fragments there, it was taken and it's cut off from its past. So it's lost, it's lost its provenance and context, if you like. Uh, yes, and, and the Irish scholars at the time were, were furious about the way they were basically forgotten altogether. <laughs> and, uh, well, considering the way they were treated, yes. Yes, and, and they fought a valiant uh, effort to try to say, no, 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 this, is, uh, this was ours, it, it's, it's not classical at all. So, so it was known already at the time, this was not what it seemed to be. We, so our take on this, we looked at the societies as usual. And what we wanted to do and we was to compare how the societies in Ossian compared to the societies in cycle of Irish mythology and also how, how it compared to Homer because that's who they were trying to position Ossian next to. So we looked at that and again using our quantitative methods we were able to very clearly establish that Ossian is very similar to Ireland's uh, Irish sources are not at all similar to anything from the classics. So Johnson's views are validated, maybe 250 years too late. <laughs> so we met back in 2020 when you got in touch with me by email about a very exciting project. This was the international arts competition, Arts for Shinnan. Now, tell me how that got started. Yes, uh, well, around this time, Athlone... The, the, the Council of Athlone, they wanted to put up a statue which would represent Athlone Town itself and its position on the River Shannon. So I got wind of this because I come from Athlone, as I told you. And um, the piece that they selected was something that looked very like Neptune. Uh, actually, it came from the Custom House in Dublin. And uh, so it came from a colonial area. That I understand. I mean, I remember when I first saw the decorations on the Dublin Custom House with all the different river gods, definitely neoclassical. That really annoyed me. Yes, I, I wish I could have <laughs> spoken with you uh, a long time ago, let's say 20 years ago, when I firstly noticed this. I used to live in Dublin and it used to irk me as well that there were these here in neoclassical Greek type statues um, which were representing the rivers of Ireland when they didn't really belong there at all. There were some colonial constructs. Uh, but at the time, living in Dublin, I didn't really feel I had any authority or right to Dublin can do with their statues what they want. But this statue was on was on the way to my hometown at Lone. And I felt in this case I do have not just a right but an obligation to speak out. And actually, on, as part of the, the, the journey through this, discovered that they, one of the original statistical physicists, a chap called Richard Carbon, who came from a not too far away from Athlone. And he, a physicist he was, but he eventually became a comparative pathologist as well. He dabbled in comparative mythology a bit like myself. So back to the very, even the very start of statistical physics, there was this connection. So I explained on the radio waves that this Custom House statue cannot possibly represent Athlone or the Shannon River. Because if it represents anything, it represents the export export of money uh, from Ireland 
during very bad colonial times to the British Empire. That's what each of these individual uh, riverheads mean and the custom house. The custom house was the first place where tax was collected. So uh, really, the, 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 the deity, the mythological deity uh, associated with um, the Shannon is, as you well know, Chris, Shannon. And I knew from listening to your podcast that uh, you were leading authorities on Shannon. So I, I was absolutely obliged to contact you and, and get the experts in who we really needed. And uh, so that's why I contacted you. I, I was so pleased to hear from you. And I was delighted that uh, you had uh, picked up on, on Shannon. And it was one of the things that I noticed. I, as I was coming to the River Shannon, I immediately wanted to know where it came from, where the stories came from. And this allowed me to study the, the the story of Shinnan. Now, at the time, I didn't have Isolde to help me, and I only knew the story as written by Eugene Okari. And it worried me a little that it was being presented as, as a disobedient woman who dared to go near this sacred or special well and take the lid off, allowing it to flow away. And I knew there were other stories similar to that, such as the story of the Boyne River, and yet something felt wrong about it. A river is, a, is, a, is a, a feature that brings prosperity and fertility. And to keep it all locked up and to see it as a crime or even a sin to let it go seemed wrong. And as I worked on it with Isolde for the very first podcast we did for Story Archaeology, we discovered something really remarkable, that in fact the Eugene O'Curry was a mashup. And with a lack of authenticity, he combined two stories. And when you went back to the Dinhyanicus stories, the real Shinnan who appears there is very, very different. She was a woman who, in times of difficulty for her people, went to find the source of the well under the sea, at the well of generous women, and allowed it to flow and create a new life for her people. There's, it's, there's lots of material about this on the web, website, but I was so glad when you got in contact with me. So back to the competition. It was a real success. It was a real success. I, 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 I needed as well, again, the people with the right knowledge, which is yourselves, and also Daniel, Daniel Curley and um, Mike McCarthy and Ref Cohen Visitor Centre. And I contacted these people as well. And uh, But it was very lucky as well, because exactly at the same time, uh, there's a new agenda in the research community, which is called the, Re- the, the Impact Agenda, where uh, it is now there's a, an increasing importance in academics reaching out to the community which is outside of academia, so to inform people, and that's exactly what people were uninformed about this neo-colonial statue or neo-classical st- statue going up in Athlone. So, how did you organise the competition? in order to enable our research to impact onto the world which is outside of academia. We gathered together some people who are from a folklore background and, and quite an interdisciplinary group to run and judge a competition which is all centred around Shunning. And the idea was, at this one we did, any art form we had, and we had, I think it was something like £4,000 or euros up for grabs, and, uh, and it was very successful. Yes, we had, we, we, we ran it through the Irish Post newspaper, which is very popular in almost the Irish diaspora, both here in England and also uh, in the United States, but also in Ireland itself, with a big online presence. And um, this was the perfect place for us to communicate the message of Shannon, which is also a message of education. We, we were able to communicate this message to as many people as we possibly could. So we, in the end, that statue in Athlone did go up. It was erected and it's there in place now. 
But the people are informed now and they know that this statue is inappropriate and people have been lobbying for a statue uh, to recognise Sean and rec- recognise the place of women. Of course. Yeah, the the excellent work of the writers and artists and translators of the Celtic Twilight, they were extraordinary and did extraordinary things, but they were very much people of their time. And I would have said men of their time if it wasn't for Lady Gregory. Yes, yes. You know, so we honour them for what they did, but they bowdlerized and brought things into, uh, shall we say, an atmosphere of that period, which wasn't exceptionally helpful to women. And, of course, in, in Irish mythology, the, there are very strong female figures all the way through. We will come to that later. But the submissions were excellent all round. It was hard to select. It was, it was, it was agonising to select them, really, actually. The, the actual winners were, were a stained glass piece, which is absolutely beautiful, and then a critical piece of art, and, and a painting which combined with poetry. People submitted poetry, there was even a book, and there was lots of digital art. So it was really amazingly rich and amazingly creative. The panel itself was also interesting in its own right. There was about 20 or a little bit over 20 people on the panel, a third scientist, a third humanities, and a third lady. So that in itself was an interesting uh, exploration to, to see how different people from different backgrounds judge things and uh, different levels of stringency and different levels of confidence that people had in their, in their various cores. We did see patterns there as well. So, for example, we did discover that humanities people are quite um, quite stringent, let's say. Probably, probably too many teachers. Scientists seem to be very, very generous in the marks they give. Uh, the lay people seem to be somewhere in the middle. That's something we have to research into the future. That is interesting. That's very interesting because sometimes I felt that I was being a bit overcritical. <laughs> Perhaps, yes. But we did have a fantastic algorithm that uh, we had developed with some people in Warwick University, which was able to level out all these things, the levels of confidence and stringency. And as I say, one of the pieces which did win in the end was a part poem and very accurate, I believe. It was. It was one that I looked at. The poem did recognise the forms of early poetry as well, which... I, you know, acknowledged and enjoyed. There are a selection of the submissions on on the Story Archaeology website. I'm afraid I didn't get them all up, but I'll put in the direct link so you can look at the ones I have put up. Even in the entries that I enjoyed exploring, there was one thing that really touched me personally. Several participants particularly mentioned the version of the Shinnan story that I wrote almost 30 years ago while I was taking my turn to keep shop at the Barrel Store Arts Collective. You know, it, it, I was just touched that that moment that for me was an inspiration has gone on to touch other people, which so a personal thank you. So let's talk about one of your most recent projects. It's particularly exciting. I'm really interested in your recent paper on Ukrainian epic narratives. Now, I'm familiar with background to Slavic story tradition more through oral tradition theory. Uh, I've been interested in the work of Professor John Foley and more currently Professor Michael Drought. Now, originally I came across these stories through the work of Milman Parry and Albert Lord, who explored the concept of oral tradition and how it works in the early 30s. But the point is that what I've looked at focuses more on how the story tradition was constructed rather than the content of these particular hero stories. But tell us more about the paper. Well, yes, the paper has um, recently been submitted to a journal called Advances in Complex Systems that should be published fairly shortly. It was actually under construction for quite a long time. Well, there is one generic question we always have, which is how the narrative compares to other narratives. 
So I can give a few a little flavor of these type of measurements. One of the things you might have heard of degrees of separation, everybody in society is connected to everybody else approximately by six steps. So for example, I recently discovered there are three steps between me and Vladimir Putin. So I know, I know, I know, a, I know a chap in um, a physicist in a university in Moscow who knows the head of that university who knows Putin. So for three steps. That's quite scary. <laughs> it's quite scary. Yes, uh, when we do these narratives, we we classify connections between characters as being positive or negative. So positivity can can range from slightly being affectionate towards somebody to to being in love, and negativity can be going from a slight <laughs> uh, contempt to somebody to something much more extreme. The link between me and the next step and that link of three uh, has now turned negative. That's not at all surprising. Yeah, other things that we've done to look at uh, complex networks, a concept called structural balance. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You can explore to what extent this is true in a in a network and to what extent it's not true. And it gives you some little measure of how much it's like a real social network. Yes, it must be helpful to explore the interrelationships of the background cast of characters. Another idea that, that, is, that is very powerful for us is the idea of, of homophily or assortativity, which is this idea of birds of a feather flock together. Anyway, so with these various measures, we were, we were, able, to, we were able to map out how they compare with others, such as, for example, Tom Cunha, the Icelandic sagas, and everything else we measured before. So as we go along, we've got a larger and larger database. I believe that the Kiev epic cycle is a particularly significant one. In this case, the main hero is Vladimir. He's a kind of a semi-mythological character, but he's believed to be based upon three historical characters in Ukraine. We're talking about the Kiev cycle now, but this uh, really started in Ukraine and it, it's, it's, it, it's emigrated from Ukraine up towards Russia. So any claims of um, Ukraine as being a, a, a byproduct of Russia are absolutely ludicrous. If anything, it's the other way around. Well, Kiev is a very old capital city in its own right. It's an important place. And as far as I know, the Kiev epic cycle is the older one as well. Yes, indeed. Yes, they're, you're quite right. They're older than the, than, or the Moscow. The stories migrate. In our paper, we directly come to Putin's now famous essay from the 12th of July uh, last year, where he claims affinity or unity or, or oneness between Russia and Ukraine. Historians have said his intention is to become somewhat the new Vladimir. Again, we can show in our, in our paper that Vladimir is surrounded by multiple characters. He's the most connected in the entire network and characters who are quite happy to defy and not obey every order. So there's no way on this earth that Putin could possibly be a Vladimir. <laughs> he's, got, he's picked the wrong hero there, hasn't he? He's picked the wrong hero and he's not surrounded by the right heroes which make Vladimir Vladimir. I can give you an example, on, not on that level, but on a very domestic level, about a project, a uh, Longford Schools project that I was involved with a few years ago now, involving children and parents from Poland, Moldova, Belarus, Romania, Ukraine, and several other Slavic countries. There's quite a cultural diversity in Longford. Now, similar stories were known to them all, but several parents and grandparents commented that many had been, or had become, stories that is, had become Russian. And they always, they told me, you can always tell it's become a Russian story, remarked one mother. There's too many gloomy birch forests. And as we know, Ukraine is not a place of gloomy birch forest. That's very interesting. And it, it, can, it connects very well to the other main conclusion of our paper, which was that because, of course, we compared Belinia to 
other nations' uh, epic narratives. And it falls very much between the Thorin Borkunia and uh, the Icelandic sagas. It is a heroic epic and with the character Vladimir. And then it is very, very similar to Thorin Borkunia. Once we start tweaking with the characters and once we split Vladimir into the three historical characters that perhaps made him up, then it becomes much more like the Icelandic sagas. So really we, we position these Bolinia very much between the Icelandic sagas and, and, and Ireland's Thorin Borkunia, very much on the western end of Europe. Well, I suppose in terms of the Tonbokunia, you've got two opposing factions and neither are doing the right thing and have many people around them who don't agree with what they're doing. Well, they're not doing it for the right reasons either. It's quite a sad story. So I think we're going to hear about a new project that's going to be launched shortly. And I believe the Irish Post will be involved once more. But this time, the competition is focused on myth and gender. So... Can you release any news about it? Yes, indeed. Uh, we've, we've now got the funding for this uh, this project. But yes, the, we'll, we'll launch it formally in the Irish Post on Beltonus on the 1st of May. But the idea of this is that we will have art, as we had before. But in parallel, we would like a research project which involves people who are not necessarily academics, people who have their stories to tell, or any size bit of research, female characters in Irish folklore, in Irish mythology, and who can send us information about these that we can embed in some future research. Mm, now that sounds an excellent idea. A project about gender, which is about people's experience of contemporary gender issues in Ireland, as well as gender in art and mythology. They, I believe there are to be prizes for art and poetry again, is that right? Yes, yes. We have, we have of the order of um, €10,000. Now that's a lot of prize worth having. But there's more that people's own personal experiences and stories about folklore and local characters in their own communities can also become part of a future research paper. Yes, and I would like, in, in ultimately in the future, I would love some of this to feed into the future identity documents for Irish people. So we've had men long enough in our passports. Let's now... Uh, maybe have a Sheila and a gig in there. Let's, let's maybe have Bond in there. Let's maybe have Shannon in there. Let's have Biddy Early. Let's have Biddy Early in there. But let's have some women. That's, that's my point. There's lots of people we could include. Yes, it, it's a while even since we had Maeve on the paper currency. At least she used to be there. Yes, yes. So what is coming up very shortly is a project that's uh, going to be very exciting and uh, sounds like well-funded as well. That's, that's the plan, exactly, yes. And people can be part of this project. It's not just academics sitting in the ivory towers telling people, pontificating about things, but uh, we, can, we can all do it together and we'll just pull it, pull it together. As the river flows to the sea, you know, it's a shinnin again. Yes, yes. Right, since we've brought up the topic of myth and gender, it's worth looking a bit more at that. Now, gender in mythology and folktale is an extremely relevant topic. For instance, one of the things that put me off classical mythology, especially Greek mythology, was that there was so much explicit abuse towards women embedded in the stories. 
As a child, I felt that many European folk tales had some extremely drippy heroines. And don't even get me started on the effect of the modern-day Disney princesses. Yes. Maybe that's one of the reasons that as a child I was very drawn to ancient Egyptian stories. It's not very well known, but there is a version of the somewhat unpleasant Rapunzel story where a young woman rescues a prince who's been shut away in a tower with the support of a dog, a crocodile and a snake. <laughs> Unfortunately, the denouement is now lost to time. We don't know the end of the story, which is a pity. Yes. Well, if we're going to be talking about gender in Irish myth, well, that's the thing about the Irish stories. There are so many women with very important parts to play, whether they're uh, leaders or poets. They have very central roles. For instance, Shinnan. Well, we've talked a lot about Shinnan. And the part she plays in the Dinhyanicus poems just emphasises the central value she, she is to her whole people and how she saves them. Yes, Chris, I think I I like that very much, what you're saying. And and for example, my daughter, even my daughter is eight years old and she has complained since she was about five about the the girls in Paw Patrol, for example, often do the heroic act, but the the boys tend to get all the glory for it. So contrast this to the likes of Medev. Surely we should be re-invoking them to give us a way to navigate our way into the future. Okay, she she might not have been always perfect, but her association, her deep association with with Crohn, with Kruakon, with... This is the sort of thing that I would like to inspire people to, to, to tap into for inspiration. So we no longer have all, all people from a throne who are famous have to be men or, or all the heroes in Pop Patrol have to be boys. I mean, let's look at Medivh. <laughs> you see, there is still work to do, isn't there? I, I mean, I know, I know Medivh is not always a good role model, but she is always independent and powerful. In terms of the, the laws about women in in early in early Irish society I mean pre-Norman her marriage contract although yeah she's noble but it is significant this is a whole problem the basis of the toy and the pillow talk is that she says that she always has to be equal to her husband that he must not have more than her and she may not have more than him and so that's why when a bull changes sides the whole thing goes to pieces now this it goes a lot deeper than that but nevertheless she was able to control her own marriage con- uh, contract and she isn't alone in that so there's there's a lot to look at there and not just equal Chris look at Scottock for example and the, how much that everybody had to pay to her when they went to her for, for, for their training people like who call himself Oh, yes. I mean, I think she's an incredible character. And they're out on the Isle of Shadows, which is supposed to be uh, Sky. She's remembered on Sky. But nevertheless, all these macho uh, warriors from Ulster, they all had to go and be trained at the school run by a woman. She taught them all the best moves. I, I think that's, that's, that's a great story. And then there's other characters who are lesser known, like Fulmnock, and in the story of Aideen and Mither. Now, she is regarded as the, the, the one who causes Aideen to be turned into a pool of water and then a fly and be blown away. I'll put up the links to the whole Mither and Aideen story. It's a brilliant story. I know she is the aggrieved first wife who's been discarded for a younger model. So she's got right on her side. And she has, well, actually, she has rights on her side. She may, she doesn't actually break the law because as long as she doesn't touch the second wife, she can say or do what she likes as long as she doesn't do her physical injury. So therefore, she doesn't damage her, but she just 
transfers her to become a pool of water and finally a beautifully scented fly. So she doesn't actually break the rules. But whatever you think of her, she's a powerful and respected poet and she's treated as such. She can't be ignored. So I think that's an interesting character. And then, of course, we've got Ema. Now, Ema is gifted in every sense, and she's a very powerful and clever woman. She's regarded as one of the cleverest women in Ulster. Oh, yeah, she, she has a way with words. And I would say, let us, let us have these characters in our passports in the future. And that's something that's entirely made up and has to be almost 100% male. <laughs> Ema would be a good one. <laughs> you know, the column was just, it wouldn't have been anything without Ema. It's interesting because the, the rights of women, and uh, they had rights in law, you know, the pre-Norman Brehon law, laid down very clear guidelines. So you've got much stronger characters in Irish myth than in many other cycles. That is absolutely true. And we have that in, in a, a paper, actually. That Actually, it will be a part of a book called Epic World. And then in the future, as I say, with this part of this bigger project that we're all embarking on together, where people can submit their own stories about Irish mythological women, post-Norman, pre-Norman, whatever you like. There's a lot to draw from. Well, we've covered a lot of topics and any of the links to Story Archaeology podcasts that are relevant, such as ones on oral tradition or ones on Aidy Mither or uh, Skark, for instance, I'll make sure all the links are up. And of course, there'll be a lot more with the, the new uh, maths and myths and women and gender project coming up. And in all the ways that that, like Shinnan's Well, it'll flow and become bubbling and creative and, until it becomes a great river and goes to the sea. So it's been great talking with you, Ralph, and uh, thanks so much. It's really fascinating. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's an honour. It's been fun. It's been fun for me too. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children, as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon. <laughs>